two things. It holds in tension the assurance of our salvation, but it also holds in tension warnings. And these warnings are real. They mean something. These warnings are not just for people who are not believers. If you are a believer, if you have accepted Christ, if you, the Spirit has regenerated you, if you have a new heart, you are going to heed those warnings. And those warnings help to keep us from falling into issues like what we're going to see in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. So these warnings are important, and these warnings need to be heard. If you are not a believer here tonight, then these warnings, are you're either going to want to just completely ignore these warnings, or it's going to bring to light the sinfulness of our heart and point you towards Christ and towards the gospel. And so, as we uh, jump into chapter 10, um, why don't we uh, take a look at this, and we'll read 1 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so Paul is, Paul is making a biblical argument for the statements and for what he proposed in chapters 8 and 9. And he's doing this by taking the Israelite, the example of the Israelites that happened in the wilderness wanderings, everything that took place there, which we're gonna, Paul's going to expose in the rest of this chapter. He's taking the Corinthians and he's telling the Corinthians, look, you are falling into the same trap that these Israelites did. You need to see yourself in what took place with the Israelites. You need to see that you are walking down that same path and you need to heed the warnings that the Israelites did not heed. And so he begins to tie them together. And he does this in what is known as typology. And this is one of the one of the very clear one of the clearest passages in the New Testament where we see Paul doing this very deliberately. And typology is a um, to, to understand typology, we have to understand that there is one storyline that runs from beginning to end in the Bible. The Bible is not 66 loose books of the Bible that are not interconnected in any form or fashion. It is the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. starts the Genesis, and it comes to consummation revelation from beginning to end. And all those scriptures point to Christ. In all these scriptures, we found out, we were able to look back on this side of the new covenant, on this side of Christ, we're able to look back with new eyes and recognize that God was doing more back in the Old Testament than they realized. And he was one of the things that he was doing was establishing this example for us and for the Corinthians. 
And so typology can happen in many forms or fashion, and we're going to see a couple of those played out in chapter 10. One is person. A person can be a type, and we see that in Moses. And we'll find that out here in chapter 10 as well. Moses was the covenant mediator between God and the Israelite people. He mediated that covenant. He led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land. And we see Christ became the greater Moses. He he was the mediator between the better covenant. He's leading us out of our bondage of sin and slavery into the promised land. And then through the wilderness wanderings of our sanctification. And so we see where Christ fulfills that. Christ can, he fulfills the, uh, the institute of prophet, priest, and king. Those are a typology. He fulfills Moses' role as prophet by exposing our sins to us. He exposes the role of priest by uh, making the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf and being our mediator between us and God. He's the fulfillment of the king. He is the great king to come. Our sovereign king is going to come, and he is going to vanquish his enemies when he returns. And then we see it in events in the Exodus, which is clearly laid out here. This is what Paul is doing. He is tying the Israelites over with the Corinthians so that they will fully understand the weight of what is happening. So let's look at verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so all he's doing is he's identifying for the Corinthians this, this cloud. Remember the cloud in the Exodus. And in Psalms 105 identifies for us and tells us that this, this cloud was a protective covering. It was, it was thought of as protection, right? So when God led the Israelites out of bondage to reason, he led them with the cloud, and then he closed off behind them with the sea, the approaching Egyptian army. And as, he, as they crossed through this sea, they went through redemption. They were, they were redeemed, they were delivered, they were brought out of their bondage, and this is where they became the covenant people of Israel. Right? He took them, he grabbed them for his own. They became his people. He paid for them by bringing them out of, out of Egypt. And he is relating this now directly to the Corinthians with the baptism. And he's saying, look, you Corinthians, you, you profess Christ as your Savior. You are baptized. You ate at the Lord's Supper. You, you, you're taking part in all these means of grace that God has provided. Look at the Israelites. They, they were taking part in God's provision, in his protection, in the deliverance, just like you were. You were baptized as a covenant sign. They went through the water, and they, uh, they were closed off. They were protected by the Red Sea and by the cloud. See the similarities between you and the Israelites. It's not that far off. And notice, and you'll see five times in this passage, in this first five verses, he uses the word all. All of the Israelites did this. All of the Israelites passed through the sea. All of the Israelites you know, ate the bread. All of the Israelites uh, drank of the water that was provided. And I believe this is a way because it, he was probably cutting off an argument by the Corinthians to say, well, you know, we're a little bit different, you know, because uh, not, maybe not all of them participated in, in God's mercy and God's grace. And he's shutting that argument down from the beginning. All of them proceeded. And that becomes important when we get to into five. And then moving on. And they all, they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And here we directly, he's directly tying it to Christ and showing the, the full scope of this, of this type that he's trying to bring out. And this, this rock, the image of the rock and the water provision, has been associated with God's saving work. And this, God, and this saving work ultimately points to Christ. So the Israelites were physically eating manna. 
They were, they were physically drinking water. They were being sustained by this, but they were also being sustained spiritually by Christ. Behind the scene of this entire exiting event stands Christ. And, by, and obviously, with the new covenant, at the forefront of ours is Christ. And so he has, he has brought them together for them to completely understand what he is about to tell them. He's preparing them for that. And then he hits them with it in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This had to be a one-two punch for the Corinthians. He's, he's telling them, he's showing them, look, the Israelites, they were, they were enjoying God's grace. They were enjoying God's provision. He, he, redeemed, he pulled them out of slavery where they were making bricks for 18 hours a day. He brought them out. He's giving them bread to eat. He's giving them water to eat. He's sustaining them. He's meeting every need for them on the way. And what did they do with that? They trampled on it. They presumed upon God's grace, and they fell into sin, and then they were scattered across the desert. The word there that he used, uh, it says, Nevertheless with them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown. And then the, in the original language, it's, it's worded as scattered on the ground. It's very graphic language. It's, it's not going gently into that good night. I mean, it is. Uh, it, you see the same thing in Numbers 1429. Not sure if it's going to pop up on the screen. Um, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, listed by Moses and Aaron, the priest, who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness. Notice that first line, your body shall fall in the wilderness. This is, this is God's wrath and God's judgment being poured out on the Israelites for their, for their disobedience, for their faith, and for presuming upon the grace of God. And he has already tied this together with the Corinthians for a reason. He wants them to understand they could possibly fall into the same idolatry. They can possibly fall into the exact same sin. They, too, are experiencing God's grace. They, too, are partaking of the Lord's table. They have been baptized. They are members of the body of Christ, and, and they, are, they are fully reaping the benefits of being amongst the body of Christ, hearing the Word of God preached on a weekly, regular basis. But yet, they run the risk of doing the exact same thing as the Israelites. They run the risk of falling into idolatry and being scattered across the wilderness as the Israelites were. Israelites were not only the Corinthians, but this goes for Fisherville Baptist Church. We, too, experience God's grace. We, too, experience God's mercy. We, too, hear the Word of God preached regularly, solid preaching on a regular Sunday. We hear it, right? We have the benefit of intermingling and worshiping and fellowshipping with a body of believers. We are under God's provision. And we, too, can run the risk of presuming upon that grace and falling into idolatry and falling into sin. And that brings me to the first point, that our sin is like Israel's sin. Our sin is like Israel's sin. Corinthians' sin was like Israel's sin. Some things don't change, and the sinfulness of the human heart always expresses itself in similar manners. So we find here that the warning lights, the, the flashing warning lights in the hearts of the Corinthians should be flashing. The warning lights on our hearts should also be flashing, as it was for the Israelites. So not only does the Word of God warn us, the Word of God also diagnoses what that problem is so that we can get it fixed and so that we can continue on. So what is the problem? What is the diagnosis 
that's the theory. And what could happen if we continue on without fixing this? And verse 6 begins to answer this question for us. It says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. You know, when the Mustang finally crashed and burned and when the, when the engine locked up, it, it's, I mean, the engine locking up is definitely a problem. But the engine locking up wasn't the root of the problem. The engine locking up was the outworkings of a bigger problem, and the bigger problem being I didn't put oil in the car, right? So if I don't put oil in my engine, the engine's going to lock up. Similarly, certain we, we manifest certain types of sins that are, that are going to be the uh, outworkings of a bigger issue. And Paul identifies that issue for us here as evil desires. We have misdirected desires. Our desires, rather than being towards Christ, our affections, instead of pointing towards Christ, our affections are pointing towards other things. And Paul identifies evil desires as the root of the problem going on here with the Corinthians and with the Israelites. And he's pointing out to the Corinthians the, uh, the issue of their misplaced desires because we are driven by our desires. Every, we don't do anything without wanting to do it first. We are fully motivated and we are driven by those desires and we have an option. Our desires take us in two directions, right? Like we just said, it can go towards Christ or it can go towards something else. And the Israelites took the wrong direction. The Israelites' desires pulled them away from Christ and it pulled them towards something, uh, food. They were craving after food, which we'll expose here in a minute. Um, they were lusting after the food. That They were wanting the, the comfort that they thought they remembered having back in Egypt. Um, so the Israelites acted on those sinful desires, and they were overthrown. This word desire, um, the, the Greek translation defines it as one who longs for, craver, a lover, one eager for. And it's used two times. It's used here in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and it's also used in the Septuagint for Numbers 11. Uh, Numbers 11, 4 states, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept out, wept again, saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. And so the Israelites were grumbling. They were complaining because they didn't have the meat that they had back in Egypt. And the, it's not that they didn't want to be redeemed. It's not that they didn't want to be delivered. They, they wanted God to pull them out. But they wanted it done in a different way. They wanted to be pulled out of bondage of Egypt, and they wanted they just never pictured going into the wilderness. That kind of wasn't really on the top of their list. They still wanted to keep the comforts of what they liked about Egypt to bring those things with them. And when they didn't get that, they began to complain, they began to grumble, and they began to uh, uh, cause a lot of dissension. So they thought they knew better than God. They thought they knew what was best for them. And they did not have access to what they craved, and they became angry, and they grumbled. And those negative emotions are coming out because they're not getting what they most desire. That idol, that, that what is what's most important to them isn't coming out. And so those negative emotions are coming out. Hatred, grief, anxiety. All those things are spilling out of the fact that they can't get a hold of their idol. And those are warning lights for us. So we, we are inclined toward those things that we most desire. And we run into issues when we exchange the truth for a lie and we desire the created rather than the creator. And it's, um, it's not until our affections, I'm sorry, are rightly directed towards Christ that our desires will be satisfied, actually fully, 100% satisfied, and that we'll hate and we'll forsake our sin. At the core of issue of it, we don't desire God because we have lost our awe for God. 
We have an awe problem. James also recognizes this relationship between sin and desire. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived birth to sin, and sin, when it fully grows, brings forth to death. So again, when, is our, when our idol is unavailable, and that thing that we want, we are going to lash out. What causes you to lash out? What causes you to get angry when you don't get a hold of it? What, what do you lie in bed at night thinking about? What, what takes up, what consumes most of your time, your energy, your thoughts? What do you absolutely have to have? Is it rest and relaxation? When your kids come in and they're rummaging around when you're trying to get some work done maybe or you have a hobby that you're working on and your wife keeps wanting you to work on something else, get, some, get something done around the house, that what's that immediate emotion that sparks out of you? Is it anger? There's a reason that that anger is coming out of you. And that is that worrying. That's where we need to go back to the Word of God. That's where we need to diagnose the issue. We need to figure out what's going on. We have misdirected desires, but we cannot change our desires. We do not have the ability to change our desire. So how do our desires get fixed? The only way that we can expect a redirection in our desires is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our souls, our hearts have to be transformed. Second Corinthians says that we'll become new creations. If we repent, we believe, we bow down at the, at the feet, we go to the cross, Christ will give us a new heart. The Holy Spirit will work in us. We will be a new creature. And when we become a new creature, we have new desires. And out of those new desires, we have new longings. And out of that becomes new habits. And the sin begins to slowly fall away. It doesn't, matter, doesn't mean that believers, we're not, going to do, we're not going to have those evil desires from time to time. We're still going to have idols that pop up. And we need to be readdressing these issues within Scripture. And Scripture will reshape our worldview. These warnings in Scripture will pull us back. It'll diagnose the issue. And at the foot of the cross, at the gospel, our desires will be redirected back towards Christ. So we are in need of a heart change, and the gospel is the answer to our awe problem. Paul has clearly diagnosed the sin problem, but what happens if we don't heed the warnings, we don't take the off-ramp, and we continue going forward? And uh, he gives us these examples, he gives the Corinthians these examples, in verses 7 through 11. In verse 7, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. And here this is coming out of Exodus 32. Uh, Moses was up on Mount Sinai. He was receiving the Ten Commandments. He was gone too long. The people became anxious, took the gold, made a golden calf, and they began to praise the calf as being the, the God who pulled them and delivered them out of Egypt while he was up there. They brought pagan food. They, they, they began to have food idols and eating food, and it was rising up to play. And that has connotation of licentiousness in there. There's, there's sexual immorality going on with that, a whole host of problems. It's not rising up to play a game of football. This was a, this was a major issue. And he's, like, he's warning them, do not be like the idolaters in Egypt. And for us, again, we're not making calves. We're not making golden calves and bowing down and offering food to it. But we all have idols. We all have those things that we replace God with that we need to be aware of. And we need to heed the warning. Moving on to verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 
and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is coming out of Numbers 25. Paul is referring back to uh, the Moabite women. We're encouraging and grabbing the Israelites to come over. Uh, they, were, they were making offerings and, and worshiping Baal. Baal was the god that they would sacrifice children to. They get involved in this. There's uh, pagan food. This is why Paul is bringing this specific up for the Corinthians. There's food mixed in and then sexual immorality. They begin to, uh, they begin to um, uh, get caught up into sexual issues with these Moabite women. And then the leaders were hung and 24,000 were wiped out by the plague. I don't know about you, but that is a, that is a very serious consequence to sexual sin. And then unfortunately, in our society, we have our own issues with sexual immorality. It might not be intermingling with Moabite women. It not, might not be going to the pagan temples, but it's pornography. Pornography is pervasive in our society. Pornography is pay, pervasive on our college campuses. We are not immune at Fisherville Baptist Church. We are not immune on Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. We are not immune at Boyce College. Pastors are not immune. And we are hearing of, of high-profile pastors losing their ministry, throwing it away due to sexual immorality. This is a serious issue, and we have to be aware of it if we're going to address it, and we have to be aware of it if we're going to battle it. It is too rapidly available. A kid can go home, and all he's got to do is shut his bedroom door, get on a computer. He has ac- instant access to pornography. Back in the day, you had to walk into a convenience store, stand in front of a store clerk, and buy a magazine. You don't have to do that anymore. It's, it's, you have easy access on your cell phone. From anywhere in the world, any little hole you want to hide in, pornography can be accessed. And it's destroying homes. It's destroying marriages. We're destroying our... The, 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 we, we are homes where pornography is pervasive. Those children in those homes are that much more likely to be addicted to pornography. We are passing this sin on to our children and our children's children. It is going to take a generation to clean this up. But we have to start. We have to face it, and we have to realize God takes this thing seriously. If you are involved in pornography, stop. There is a way out. God is faithful. And we see that in this passage. There is a way out. There is an exit. And God is faithful to provide that exit. Cry out for help. Don't pass this on to your children. And don't put your marriage and your families at risk. Flee from sexual immorality. Looking on to the next verse. We must not put Christ to the test. This verse and, uh, and the next one have a lot of similarities, 9 and 10. What does he mean by we, might, we must not push, put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents? And this goes back to, uh, to Numbers 21. And again, there was, there was complaining. There was murmuring. This is, a, this is a constant pattern with the Israelites. This was continuing on. And now they began to put the blame on Moses. And what they, they tested God in that they, they did not have faith and trust that God would actually provide the food for them that they needed even though he had already crossed them through the Red Sea, even though that they wake up every morning with manna, they have, they have dinner every single night, there's a cloud leading them and protecting them, they still did not trust that God was going to provide for them. 
And it's easy to throw stones. And it's easy to point fingers and say, how could they do that? They were witnessing all these miracles. We do the exact same thing on a daily basis. We too presume upon the grace of God. And we too forget what God has done for us in the past. And we press on and we continue into these actions. And then uh, Psalm 78, which is a commentary on the wilderness wanderings and these things that were taking place. In uh, verses 18 through 20, he says, They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks with the water gushed out, streams overflowed. Can he also give bread, provide meat for his people? And so here we clearly see that they did not trust that God was going to provide for them. And this, this crosses right into, uh, um, into, cha- into verse 10 where he says, Nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. As we've already noted, it wasn't that the people didn't want to be delivered. It wasn't that they were, that they were upset that God pulled them out of Egypt. He just didn't do it in the way that they wanted. This was a massive change for the Israelites. Massive change. While they, while they were in slavery, they did have certain comforts that they were used to. And God pulled them out of that. He provided what they needed, but he didn't necessarily give them what they wanted. And there was a massive change here. And when changes like this take place, our hearts are not always content. And when there's grumbling and when there's complaining that arises out of that, it's a sign that there is a, we have a faith issue. We're not faithing. We don't have the faith in God that he's going to provide and that he is going to allow this providence to work out and that he's going to fulfill those promises. And um, I have been guilty of this probably about as, as much as anybody. I remember um, and this incident comes to mind, and there's definitely more than one incident, but this one comes to mind because I remember how angry I was. And it was definitely not founded. Um, I, was, I was in the military, as most of you know, and the military, um, you know, they pretty much own you. And so uh, you're kind of at their beck and call, right? They decide what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And how it normally flowed is every Friday night, when you want to get home, go, go home for the weekend, about 5 o'clock, they do what's called a safety briefing. They bring everybody together, and the Army is required, I don't know if you knew this, before they can let you go, they have to tell you to uh, be careful, don't drink and drive, you know, don't, um, uh, don't get involved in domestic violence incidents, don't pull a gun on anybody. I mean, they want, uh, it's a long laundry list of don't, 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 don't. But anyways, that, after that's passed, you get to go home. And uh, on this particular Friday night, they decided to make a change. One of the post generals was not happy that our post was dirty. I mean, it was, it was pretty dirty. Uh, it hadn't been picked up in a while. I think some of the contractors had gotten laid off. And when contractors get laid off, the, you have free labor with the military. You own them, there's your labor, right? So, so they called down at about 5 o'clock and said, nobody goes home from now on on Friday evenings until you've done a police call. Police call, you had to walk out, pick up all the trash, grab garbage bags. Everybody's out there. First lieutenant, second lieutenant, the captain's out there, sergeant major. I mean, everybody's out there picking up trash. And um, it just rubbed me the wrong way that day. And it took, what took it should have taken 15, 20 minutes, took us about an hour because we spent more time standing around complaining about the change than we did actually pushing through and getting it done. And I, I complained to my friends. I got in the car. I called my wife. I complained to my wife the whole way home. Um, within, I think it was like the next day or two, my mom called. I complained to my mom. I mean, everybody in my life knew what the Army did to me that day. They knew what they did. And change can be difficult to swallow. It can be difficult to swallow on an individual basis. 
And change can be difficult to swallow, swallow on a corporate basis. I know that since the, uh, the two years that I've been here at Fisherville, we have gone through a tremendous amount of change. We have seen a lot of people come. By the grace of God, we have seen this church grow uh, to the point that we can no longer fit in the sanctuary, the beautiful sanctuary. And although it's not ideal, we have had to relocate to the gym. And there's a, with a growing church, we have many other changes that, that, are, that are taking place all around us, again, by God's grace. Yes, it's not ideal, but it's very, very tempting to fall into to a, uh, a place of complaining. And it's very, very tempting to fall into grumbling. It's very, very tempting to, to sit with our buddies while we're playing golf or while we're fishing and just let it out, the, the, the anger and the frustration when, when change is taking place. I know I did. And looking back, I realize now I had fallen into sin. I had fallen into sin because I had misplaced desires. My desire was not for the glory of God. Because had it been, I would have used that opportunity to show that I am a different new creation in Christ when everybody around me was showing something different. But rather, I fell into it. I fell into it and I stepped into it big. And my desire was to be at home, sitting on my couch, having a cup of coffee, watching a movie on a Friday night. But my desire was obviously not for Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is telling the Corinthians here in that they are, they're, they're going to act just like the Israelites who are under God's provision. They receive God's mercy. They receive God's deliverance, their protection, His grace, His mercy. And what they do? They stepped on it. They presumed upon His grace, and they stepped on it. And when we complain and when we grumble, we do the exact same thing. So Paul's point is to challenge our misdirected desires and to reorientate them towards Christ. Looking at verse 12, he's very straightforward. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There is, a, there is a sense of pride when we think that we know best. There's a sense of pride when we think that sin is not going to touch me. And as soon as we do that, we're probably hooked. And we are opening ourselves to falling, just like Israel and just um, the way the Corinthians were possibly going to fall in. Moving on to 13. This brings us to our third point, that our, uh, our sin can be avoided. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. God is, we, we have not been left hanging. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul started this book, he starts it out beautifully, and you can see how this ties together through the remainder of it. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that, so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you till the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Israelites were not lacking in any spiritual gift. The Corinthians were not lacking in any spiritual gift. We, Fisherville Baptist Church, are not lacking in any spiritual gift. 
We have every means at our disposal. We have the power of the Holy Spirit behind us, and that gives us hope that when those temptations arise, that when we think we just can't do it, we, we can trust in God's faithfulness that that door is going to be there, that off-ramp is going to be there for us to take that off-ramp, diagnose our situation, and then get back on the highway once we have fallen at the feet of the cross. And this is not, this is not new. As we said, our sin is like Israel's sin. It's like Corinth's sin. Sin has been around since the beginning, since the fall. And there is no new sin out there that you haven't seen yet. There is no temptation that isn't new to the world. That means that they can all be overcome. Sexual immorality can be overcome. Pornography can be overcome. You can be victorious over pornography. We can be victorious over our, our complaining. We can, be, can, we can be victorious because God is faithful and he's going to provide the way out. In 2 Peter 2.9 says this, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. We can, be, we can trust in that because it's not our own doing. We're not going to save ourselves out of these situations. We're doing it because God has given us the power through the Holy Spirit to beat these situations. Then the Lord knows how to rescue. It's God that is doing the rescuing, not us. Know therefore, this is Deuteronomy 7.9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We are among those thousand generations. That promise is just as good for us as it was for Israel. God is faithful, and he is faithful to his covenant promises. And that has, been clear, has not been better clearly seen than in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The promise that was promised since Genesis 3.15, the coming, the promise that we find all throughout the Pentateuch, that we find through Isaiah, Jeremiah, all throughout the prophets, that a new one is going to come. He's going to usher in a new covenant. He is going to soften our hearts. He's going to give us a new heart. All of that came true in the person and the work of Christ. And the Holy Spirit given to us in his absence to carry us on. You will not find an unfulfilled promise. God is faithful to his covenant promises. And he's going to be faithful to provide you the off-ramp when you need that off-ramp to come. So we see that God is sovereign and God is going to provide a way out, but that doesn't mean that we're not responsible. That doesn't mean that we don't have a choice to make. And 14 tells us that. Therefore, flee temptation. You have a choice to make, and you have something that you have to actually do. Remember the story at the beginning when we're driving down the highway, the, the warning light goes off on our heart, and we have an option. We can take the exit, or we can keep going straight. You have to decide to take the exit. God provided the exit for you, and he's faithful that that exit always, is always going to be there when you need it. But are you going to take it? When you get at home and you sit in your room and you open up that, that computer, you can open up those websites or you can shut your computer and you can walk away from it and go call for help and bring in a friend, right? When, when change takes place, and it is hard, when change takes place, we can, we, can, we can approach it with a desire towards Christ and a desire for love and love for our neighbors, or we can do like me in my situation in the military. And I completely fumbled, fumbled that football, right? And I approached it with my own desires and, and fell into tumbling, grumbling and complaining. 
God has equipped us, and he is faithful to provide. And this all comes back again to the, the awe issue. We have, to, we have to have that awe of God. And uh, I want to read this passage to you real quick, and then we'll close. Um, Brian read this to Robert uh, when, uh, when we went to visit him in the hospital on Christmas Eve. And um, I, I had already been thinking about this, this passage, and this, it just it hit home with me, especially for this. And that we, we often fail to have an awe for God because we, forgot, we forget often and we take for granted who God is. And who his, we, we forget about God's character. And we, we fail to recognize the majesty, the grace, the justice, the love. Everything that comes together perfectly for us in the gospel, right? I thought this passage just did a, a beautiful job of, uh, of wrapping this up. We're going to look at Isaiah 40, 9 through 31. And then we'll close this evening. The greatness of God. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arms rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And whom did he understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop of a bucket and are accounted as the dust of scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor as its beast enough for a burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains? Who is to, to him harvest for an offering? Chooses wood that it will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you know? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood that from the foundations of the earth, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rule of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when wind blows on them, and they wither, and a tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, no one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, why do you speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases in strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall, be, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Behold your God, Christianville Baptist Church. Father, just thank you for your word. Father, oh God, that we would stand in awe of you. Father, that we, that we would see your greatness. And Father, and that our desires would be for you. Be with us until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.